Section 6 of Volume 1 of A Popular History of France from the Earliest Times. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Volume 1 of A Popular History of France from the Earliest Times by Francois Guizot. Translated by Robert Black. Chapter 4 Gaul Conquered by Julius Caesar. Part 2. Caesar had all the gifts, all the means of success and empire that can be possessed by man. He was great in politics and in war, as active and full of resource amidst the intrigues of the forum, as amidst the combinations and surprises of the battlefield. Equally able to please and to terrify, he had a double pride, which gave him double confidence in himself the pride of a great noble, and the pride of a great man. He was fond of saying, My Aunt Julia is, maternally, the daughter of kings. Paternally, she is descended from the immortal gods. My family unites to the sacred character of kings, who are the most powerful amongst men, the awful majesty of the gods, who have even kings in their keeping. Thus, by birth as well as nature, Caesar felt called to dominion, and at the same time he was perfectly aware of the decadence of the Roman patriciate, and of the necessity for being popular in order to become master. With this double instinct he undertook the conquest of the Gauls, as the surest means of achieving conquest at Rome. But owing either to his own vices, or to the difficulties of the situation, he displayed in his conduct and his work in Gaul so much violence and oppression, so much iniquity and cruel indifference, that, even at that time, in the midst of Roman harshness, pagan corruption, and Gallic or German barbarism, so great an infliction of moral and material harm could not but be followed by a formidable reaction. Where there are strength and ability, the want of foresight, the fears, the weaknesses, the dissensions of men, whether individuals or peoples, may be for long calculated upon, but it may be carried too far. After six years struggling, Caesar was victor. He had passed through and subjected them all, either by his own strong arm or thanks to their rivalries. In the year of Rome, 702, he was suddenly informed in Italy, whither he had gone on his Roman business, that most of the Gallic nations united under a chieftain hitherto unknown, were rising with one common impulse, and recommencing war. The same perils, and the same reverses, the same sufferings, and the same resentments, had stirred up amongst the Gauls, without distinction of race and name, a sentiment to which they had hitherto been almost strangers, the sentiment of Gallic nationality, and the passion for independence, not local any longer, but national. This sentiment was first manifested among the populace and under obscure chieftains. A band of Carnutian peasants, people of Chartrain, rushed upon the town of Genabum, Guise, roused the inhabitants, and massacred the Italian traders and a Roman knight, Gaius Fusius Quita, whom Caesar had commissioned to buy corn there. In less than twenty-four hours the signal of insurrection against Rome was borne across the country as far as the Alvernians, amongst whom conspiracy had long ago been waiting, and paving the way for insurrection. 
Amongst them lived a young Gaul, whose real name has remained unknown, and whom history has called Vercingetorix, that is, chief over a hundred heads, chief in general. He came of an ancient and powerful family of Avernians, and his father had been put to death in his own city for attempting to make himself king. Caesar knew him, and had taken some pains to attach him to himself. It does not appear that the Alvernian aristocrat had absolutely declined the overtures, but when the hope of national independence was aroused, Vercingetorix was his representative and chief. He descended with his followers from the mountain, and seized Gergovia, the capital of his nation. Thence his messengers spread over the center, northwest and west of Gaul, the greater part of the peoples and cities of those regions pronounced from the first moment for insurrection. The same sentiment was working amongst others, more compromised with Rome, who waited only for a breath of success to break out. Vercingetorix was immediately invested with the chief command, and he made use of it with all the passion engendered by patriotism and the possession of power. He regulated the movement, demanded hostages, fixed the contingents of troops, imposed taxes, inflicted summary punishment on the traitors, the dastards, and the indifferent, and subjected those who turned a deaf ear to the appeal of their common country to the same pains and the same mutilations that Caesar inflicted on those who obstinately resisted the Roman yoke. At the news of this great movement, Caesar immediately left Italy and returned to Gaul. He had one quality, rare, even amongst the greatest men. He remained cool amidst the very hottest alarms. Necessity never hurried him into precipitation, and he prepared for the struggle as if he were always sure of arriving on the spot in time to sustain it. He was always quick, but never hasty, and his activity and patience were equally admirable and efficacious. Starting from Italy, at the beginning of 702 AUC, he passed two months in traversing within Gaul the Roman province and its neighborhood, in visiting the points threatened by the insurrection, and the openings by which he might get at, in assembling his troops, in confirming his wavering allies. And it was not before the early part of March that he moved with his whole army to Agandicum, Seine, the very center of revolt, and started thence to push on the war with vigor. In less than three months he spread devastation throughout the insurgent country. He had attacked and taken its principal cities, Villanio Dunum, Trigore, Genabum, Gien, and Noviodunum, Sanquer, and Avericum, Borgia, delivering up everywhere, country and city, lands and inhabitants, to the rage of the Roman soldiery, maddened at having again to conquer enemies so often conquered, to strike a decisive blow, he penetrated at last to the heart of the country of the Alvanians, and laid siege to Gergovia, their capital, and the birthplace of Vercingetorix. The firmness and the ability of the Gallic chieftain was not inferior to such a struggle. He understood from the outset that he could not cope in the open field with Caesar and the Roman legions. He therefore exerted himself in getting together a body of cavalry, numerous enough to harass the Romans during their movements, to attack their scattered detachments, and bear his orders swiftly to all quarters, and to keep up the excitement against the different peoples with some hope of success. His plan of campaign, his repeated instructions, his passionate entreaties to the Confederates, 
were to avoid any action, to anticipate by their own ravages those of the Romans, to destroy everywhere, at the approach of the enemy, stores, springs, bridges, trees, and habitations. He wanted Caesar to find in his front nothing but ruins and clouds of warriors relentless in pursuing him without getting within reach. Frequently he succeeded in obtaining from the people these painful sacrifices in the interest of the common safety, as when the Biturigians, inhabitants of the district of Borgia, burned in one day twenty of their towns or villages. Vercingetorix abjured them to burn Avericum, Borgia, their capital, but they refused, and the capture of Avericum, though gallantly defended, justified the urgency of Vercingetorix, seeing that it was an important success for Caesar, and a serious blow for the Gauls. Out of forty thousand combatants within the walls, it is said, scarcely eight hundred escaped the slaughter, and succeeded in joining Vercingetorix, who had hovered continually in the neighborhood, without being able to offer the besieged any effectual assistance. Nor was it only against the Romans that he had to struggle. He had to fight amongst his own people, against rivalry, mistrust, impatience, and discouragement. He was accused of desiring, beyond everything, the mastery. He was even suspected of keeping up, with the aim of assuring his own future, secret relations with Caesar. He was called upon to attack the enemy in front, and so bring the war to a decisive issue. It was all very fine to be summoned by the popular voice to accomplish a great and arduous work. But you cannot be, with impunity, the most far-sighted, the most able, and the most in danger, because the most devoted. Vercingetorix was bearing the burden of his superiority and influence, until he should suffer the penalty and pay with his life for his patriotism and his glory. He was approaching the happiest moment of his enterprise and his destiny. In spite of reverses, in spite of Caesar's presence and activity, the insurrection was gaining ground and strength. In the north, west, southwest, on the banks of the Rhine, the Seine, the Loire, the idea of Gallic nationality and the hope of independence were spreading amongst people far removed from the center of the movement, and were bringing to Vercingetorix declarations of sympathy or material reinforcements. An event of more importance took place in the center itself. The Aeduans, the most ancient allies and clients the Romans had in Gaul, being divided amongst themselves and feeling, besides, the national instinct, ended, after much hesitation, by taking part in the uprising. Caesar, for all his care, could neither prevent nor stifle this defection, which threatened to become contagious and detach from Rome the neighboring peoples that were still faithful. Caesar, engaged upon the siege of Gergovia, encountered an obstinate resistance, whilst Vercingetorix encamped on the heights which surrounded his birthplace, everywhere embarrassed, sometimes attacked, and incessantly threatened the Romans. The Eighth Legion, drawn on one day to make an imprudent assault, was repulsed, and lost forty-six of its bravest centurions. Caesar determined to raise the siege, and to transfer the struggle to places where the population could be more safely depended upon. It was the first decisive check he had experienced in Gaul, the first Gallic town he had been unable to take, the first retrograde movement he had executed in the face of the Gallic insurgents, and their chieftain. Vercingetorix could not, 
and would not restrain his joy. It seemed to him that the day had dawned, and an excellent chance arrived for attempting a decisive blow. He had under his orders, it is said, eighty thousand men, mostly his own Avernians, and a numerous cavalry furnished by the different peoples, his allies. He followed all Caesar's movements in retreat towards the Saône, and, on arriving at Longueur, not far from Longre, he halted near a little river named the Vingin, pitched his camp about nine miles from the Romans, and, assembling the chiefs of his cavalry, said, Now is the hour of victory. The Romans are flying to their province and leaving Gaul. That is enough for our liberty today, but too little for the peace and repose of the future, for they will attack with greater armies, and the war will be without end. Attack we them amidst the difficulties of their march. If their foot support the cavalry, they will not be able to pursue their route. If, as I fully trust, they leave their baggage to provide for their safety, they will lose both their honor and the supplies whereof they have need. None of the enemy's horse will dare to come forth from their lines. To give you courage and aid, I will order forth from the camp and place in battle array all our troops, and they will strike the enemy with terror. The Gallic horsemen cried out that they all must bind themselves by the most sacred of oaths, and swear that none of them would come again under roof, or see again wife, or children, or parent, unless he had twice pierced through the ranks of the enemy. And all did take this oath, and so prepared for the attack. Vercingetorix knew not that Caesar, with his usual foresight, had summoned and joined to his legions a great number of horsemen from the German tribes, roaming over the banks of the Rhine, with which he had taken care to keep up friendly relations. Not only had he promised them pay, plunder, and lands, but, finding their horses ill-trained, he had taken those of his officers, even those of the Roman knights and veterans, and distributed them amongst his barbaric auxiliaries. The action began between the cavalry on both sides. A portion of the Gallic had taken up position on the road followed by the Roman army to bar its passage, but whilst the fighting at this point was getting more and more obstinate, the German horse in Caesar's service gained a neighboring height, drove off the Gallic horse that were in occupation, and pursued them as far as the river, near which was Vercingetorix with his infantry. Disorder took place amongst this infantry so unexpectedly attacked. Caesar launched his legions at them, and there was a general panic and rout among the Gauls. Vercingetorix had great trouble in rallying them, and he rallied them only to order a general retreat for which they clamored. Hurriedly striking the camp, he made for Alicia, Semor in Exwa, a neighboring town and the capital of the Mandubians, a people in clientship to the Aeduans. Caesar immediately went in pursuit of the Gauls, killed, he says, three thousand, made important prisoners, and encamped with his legions before Alicia, the day but one after Vercingetorix, with his fugitive army, had occupied the place as well as the neighboring hills, and was hard at work entrenching himself, probably without any clear idea as yet of what he should do to continue the struggle. Caesar at once took a resolution, as unexpected as it was discreetly bold. Here was the whole Gallic insurrection, chieftain and soldiery, united together within or beneath the walls of a town of moderate extent. He undertook to keep it there, and destroy it on the spot, 
instead of having to pursue it everywhere, without ever being sure of getting at it. He had at his disposal eleven legions, about fifty thousand strong, and five or six thousand cavalry, of which two thousand were Germans. He placed them around Alicia and the Gallic camp, caused to be dug a circuit of deep ditches, some filled with water, others bristling with palisades and snares, and added, from interval to interval, twenty-three little forts, occupied or guarded night and day by detachments. The result was a line of investment about ten miles in extent. To the rear of the Roman camp, and for defense against the attacks from without, Caesar caused to be dug similar entrenchments, which formed a line of circumvallation of about thirteen miles. The troops had provisions and forage for thirty days. Vercingetorix made frequent sallies to stop or destroy these works, but they were repulsed, and only resulted in getting his army more closely cooped up within the place. Eighty thousand Gallic insurgents were, as it were, in prison, guarded by fifty thousand Roman soldiers. Vercingetorix was one of those who persevere and act in the days of distress, just as in the springtide of their hopes. Before the works of the Romans were finished, he assembled his horsemen, and ordered them to sally briskly from Alicia, return each to his own land, and summon the whole population to arms. He was obeyed, and the Gallic horsemen made their way, during the night, through the intervals left by the Romans still in perfect lines of investment, and dispersed themselves amongst their various peoples. Nearly everywhere irritation and zeal were at their height. An assemblage of delegates met at Bibracte, Altun, and fixed the amount of the contingents to be furnished by each nation, and a point was assigned at which all those contingents should unite for the purpose of marching together towards Alicia and attacking the besiegers. The total of the contingents thus levied on the forty-three Gallic peoples amounted, according to Caesar, to two hundred and eighty-three thousand men, and two hundred and forty thousand men, it is said, did actually hurry up to the appointed place. Mistrust of such enormous numbers has already been expressed by one who has lived through the greatest European wars, and has heard the ablest generals reduce to their real strength the largest armies. We find in Monsieur Thiers' History of the Consulate and Empire that at Austerlitz, on the 2nd December, 1805, Napoleon had but 65 to 70,000 men, and the combined Austrians and Germans but 90,000. At Leipzig, the biggest of modern battles, when all the French forces on the one side, and the Austrian, Prussian, Russian, and Swedish on the other, were face to face on the 18th of October, 1813, they made altogether about 500,000 men. How can we believe, then, that nineteen centuries ago, Gaul, so weakly populated and so slightly organized, suddenly sent two hundred and forty thousand men to the assistance of eighty thousand Gauls, besieged in the little town of Alicia, by fifty or sixty thousand Romans? But whatever may be the case with the figures, it is certain that, at the very first moment, the national impulse answered the appeal of Vercingetorix, and that the besiegers of Alicia, Caesar and his legions found that they were themselves all at once besieged in their entrenchments by a cloud of Gauls, hurrying up to the defense of their compatriots. The struggle was fierce but short. 
Every time that the fresh Gallic army attacked the besiegers, Resingetorix and the Gauls of Alicia sallied forth and joined in the attack. Caesar and his legions on their side, and at one time repulsed these double attacks, at another themselves took the initiative, and assailed at one and the same time the besieged and the auxiliaries Gaul had sent them. The feeling was passionate on both sides. Roman pride was pitted against Gallic patriotism. But in four or five days the genius of Caesar carried the day. The Gallic reinforcements, beaten and slaughtered without mercy, dispersed, and Vercingetorix and the besieged were crowded back within their walls without hope of escape. We have two accounts of the last moments of this Gallic insurrection and its chief. One, written by Caesar himself, plain, cold, and harsh as its author. The other, by two later historians who were neither statesmen nor warriors, Plutarch and Dion Cassius, has more detail and more ornament, following either popular tradition or the imagination of the writers. It may be well to give both. The day after the defeat, says Caesar, Vercingetorix convokes the assembly and shows that he did not undertake the war for his own personal advantage, but for the general freedom. Since submission must be made to fortune, he offers to satisfy the Romans either by instant death or by being delivered to them alive. A deputation there is sent to Caesar, who orders the arms to be given up and the chiefs brought to him. He seats himself on this tribunal in front of his camp. The chiefs are brought. Vercingetorix is delivered over. The arms are cast at Caesar's feet. Except the Aeduans and Alvernians, whom Caesar kept for the purpose of trying to regain their people, he had the prisoners distributed, head by head, to his army as booty of war. The account of Dion Cassius is more varied and dramatic. After the defeat, says he, Vercingetorix, who is neither captured nor wounded, might have fled, but hoping that the friendship that had once bound him to Caesar might gain him grace, he repaired to the Romans without previous demand of peace by the voice of a herald, and appeared suddenly in his presence, just as Caesar was seating himself upon his tribunal. The apparition of the Gallic chieftain inspired no little terror, for he was of lofty stature, and had an imposing appearance in arms. There was a deep silence. Vercingetorix fell at Caesar's feet, and made supplication by touch of hand, without speaking a word. The scene moved those present with pity, remembering the ancient fortunes of Vercingetorix, and comparing them with his present disaster. Caesar, on the contrary, found proof of criminality in the very memories relied upon for salvation, contrasted the late struggle with the friendship appealed to by Vercingetorix, and so put in a more hideous light the odiousness of his conduct. And thus, far from being moved by his misfortunes at the moment, he threw him in chains forthwith, and subsequently had him put to death, after keeping him to adorn his triumph. Another historian, contemporary with Plutarch, Florus, attributes to Vercingetorix, as he fell down and cast his arms at Caesar's feet, these words, Bravest of men, thou hast conquered a brave man. It is not necessary to have faith in the rhetorical compliment, or to likewise reject the mixture of pride and weakness attributed to Vercingetorix in the account of Dion Cassius. It would not be the only example of a hero 
seeking yet some chance of safety in the extremity of defeat, and abasing himself for the sake of preserving at any price a life on which fortune might still smile. However it may be, Vercingetorix, vanquished, dragged out, after ten years' imprisonment, to grace Caesar's triumph, and put to death immediately afterwards, lives as a glorious patriot in the pages of that history in which Caesar appears. On this occasion, as a peevish conqueror, who took pleasure in crushing, with cruel disdain, the enemy he had been at so much pains to conquer. Alicia taken, and Vercingetorix a prisoner, Gaul was subdued. Caesar, however, had in the following year, AUC 703, a campaign to make subjugate some peoples who tried to maintain their local independence. A year afterwards, again, attempts at insurrection took place in Belgica, and afterwards the mouth of the Loire, but they were easily repressed. They had no national or formidable characteristics. Caesar and his lieutenants willingly contented themselves with an apparent submission, and in the year 705 AUC, the Roman legions, after nine years' occupation in the conquest of Gaul, were able to depart therefrom to Italy and the East for a plunge into civil war. End of chapter 4